So, uh, let's wrap up chapter 17 of 1 Kings uh, this morning. Um, again, it's fascinating. In chapter 17, 18, and 19, you start the ministry of Elijah, you reach the climax of the ministry of Elijah, and then you get to descend with him into the depths of depression after that. Um, but in just a few chapters, he's made a, he, he has made a huge impact on the uh, Jewish and the Christian faith. Um, you know, of course, he chose, God through him chose Elisha to, to, to be his protege and to uh, pick up the mantle of his prophet, of his prophetic work. So his work continues that way, but uh, he's mentioned a lot uh, in the New Testament because of how significant he is. So it's important that we know um, Elijah. And we know why, whether it's John the Baptist or Jesus, uh, they would look at John the Baptist and Jesus and they would think Elijah when they would do that for a lot of reasons. So in chapter 17, um, we see two miracles. Uh, well, more than that, actually. We see the miracle of, of uh, Elijah being fed twice a day by the ravens when he's there at the Cherith Ravine. And then he goes to Zarephath. And in Zarephath, uh, we see at least two miracles. What are the two miracles that, uh, that God uses Elijah to perform in Zarephath? We looked at one last week. We're looking at the other one today. Yeah, the food. Just make, you know, that, that miracle that the jar of flour and the jug of um, oil just never ran out. And that will sustain them in a drought. And then today, uh, the first... Um, I actually prefer the word resuscitation than resurrection because if you notice Jesus, we use the word resurrection with, um, really for Lazarus and um, the son of the widow of Nain and Elijah is going to resuscitate, bring somebody back from the dead also. All of those folks got brought back from the dead. They got to die again. Uh, Not true with Jesus. So it's a miraculous resuscitation from the dead is really what we see in these folks. So uh, it did not benefit these folks, like the son of the widow of Nain. It didn't really benefit the son of the widow of Nain to bring him back from the dead. Uh, Just like Lazarus, it doesn't benefit Lazarus to bring him back from the dead. But uh, Jesus with Lazarus or the prophets... Uh, did signs and wonders like this so that people would believe in their God. You know, as you keep reading through Elijah, uh, or the Bible actually, but with Elijah, you need to keep asking yourself the question, is Elijah's God my God? Because uh, chances are, by human nature, the answer is no. Uh, if you've been around any babies lately, you know babies sort of come into the world thinking they're the center of the universe. And that's okay, that's fine, that's the way it should be. But uh, I know some 50-year-olds who still think they're the center of the universe. Um, we, we create gods. Uh, it's John Calvin who said, the human heart is an idol-making machine. Um, and we just create lots of idols. Sometimes it's not as obvious as having a god like Baal. Um, you know, I remember one time Paul says in Philippians, he's talking about somebody, he says their God is their belly. <laughs> what they eat, 
their lack of restraint. So we just create gods all over the place. That's why it should be almost a daily question. Is, is Elijah's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, God of Jesus, uh, is that our God? Because we have others. So what, what do you remember about the city of Zarephath? Jewish Gentile, Gentile, pagan, which Gentile means pagan to the Jewish folks, at least in Hebrew Bible. So it's, it's a pagan spot. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's outside of Ahab's uh, jurisdiction, but it's where Jezebel came from. It's where Jezebel's father rules. So it's very much a pagan context. Um, they worship Baal. There, uh, B A A L, Baal or Baal. They worshiped him there, uh, the god of fertility, the god of rain. And by the way, this is important for today's text, he was also the god of life and death. Uh, they just, he was their god. So they thought he was the one causing all this stuff to happen. So here Elijah is sent by the true God to this place. Uh, part of what is going on, I think whether it's at the ravine Cherith or Zarephath, um, Elijah's being prepared. He's being um, formed for what's going to happen in chapter 18. Again, the climax is on top of Mount Carmel, where he defeats 450 prophets of Baal. Uh, he's being prepared for that. By the way, the word Zarephath even means literally crucible. So, you know, he was first uh, sent to be by himself and the ravens on, uh, uh, in the ravine of Cherith. Now he's sent right, sent right into the thick of pagan territory. And both of these are forming him. Um, usually when God is allowing strange, hard, difficult stuff come into our lives... He's getting us ready for the next season, getting us ready for the next step, getting us ready for the next ministry or mission. I'm not sure we always see difficult things in life that way, um, but we should. God is always trying to grow us up, grow us up. Uh, I'm sure you've heard me say that C.S. Lewis refers to it as the intolerable compliment. God loves you so much, he's not going to... Quit bugging you and bothering you till you're like Christ. And he will keep growing you up in this life um, till you become like Christ. Now, I know the difficult times in life, you know, usually when I tell people, by the way, to be a little personal, when I tell people that the last 2000, last 200, last two years, feels like 2000, the last <laughs> two years have been very much a sanctifying experience for me. They usually laugh, but I'm serious. It has been a sanctifying experience for me, for this congregation. Uh, I hear that all the time from the leaders. I hear that from our legal team right now that's preparing for um, annual conference. It's been a sanctifying experience. So we need to be able to look at, at challenging times of life as sanctifying experiences because that is, that is what we want more than anything else. Um, right? Shake your head yes. Uh, I don't know that we feel that way. I used to love to tell my teenage children, God's more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. And you can imagine how many times my kids rolled their eyes at me. 
when I said God's more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. Uh, God does pay as that intolerable compliment. You know, I'm sure there were other things Elijah would rather be doing than being by himself with the ravens or now being away from the Jewish people in the midst of a pagan culture, in the midst of a culture that, that was very hostile to him. Uh, you know, not quite as hostile as, as Jezebel who came out of that culture. But, you know, we need to see these things as sanctifying experiences. Uh, if we don't have these sanctifying experiences coming into our lives, that should provoke a, a, a more, a more deep, deeply seated question in our lives. But God is working on us. God's working on us. So he sends them to the widow of Zarephath, pagan culture. Uh, he finds her as a drought going on. It's going to last three and a half years. He, found, he finds her gathering sticks because she is preparing a meal for her and her son that she assumes is what kind of meal? The last one. And there comes Elijah and says, bring me some water. And by the way, bring me some, a cake of bread. Uh, and um, I'm sure I'd love to know what her thoughts were when he was saying that to her. But, um, yeah, he, he went and stayed with her for an extended period of time. Um, I'll show you in a moment how he stayed with her and did not compromise his holiness, did not even appear to compromise his holiness. But he stayed with her, and uh, the oil and the flour did not give out. Miracle of provision, God taking care of them. Um, and that goes on for a while. And then something happens. They've been saved from death as a result of the drought and starvation. But um, here comes another death. Look at, look at verse 17. After this, and again, that's the miracle that's been happening with the provision and all that. After this, the son of the woman, it's interesting she's never named. I wish she had a, I wish, I wish I knew her name. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So her child dies. Um, one thing that I learned real quickly in ministry is the worst death anyone can suffer is the death of their child. I've been told that hundreds of times. I, I was told one time by one person, she was a single mother, kind of like this lady maybe, in Zarephath. She was a single mother who um, she and her son were the family for a long time, and her son, when he was late in his teenage years, got killed. And um, I remember she said to me that she took strange comfort in the fact of knowing that she had already gone through the worst thing in life she could go through. Nothing ahead of her would be worse. Uh, anyways, here's the death of a child for this um, widow of Zarephath. Now, I want you to notice how she responds, how Elijah responds. I know the miracle kind of gets our attention here, but watch how she responds and watch how Elijah responds. So verse 18, here's, Eli here, here's her response. She, she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Um, I mean, here he has been in the house and because of him and his God working this miracle. But when the son dies, uh, she kind of turns on Elijah. 
at this point. You know, um, and, and it's interesting. You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance. We don't know what sin she's remembering. But somehow when her son dies, she thinks that has something to do with a past sin. And maybe it's the holiness of Elijah there in the, ha- in the home that's, that's made her think about that past sin. And now she thinks that because of her sin, what's happened? Son's died. Now, again, you know, I run across some Christians who draw those connections. Um, that's not really a Christian connection. Jesus makes that very clear in the New Testament. But again, this person is en route, I think, to becoming a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's not quite there yet. So because she's a worshiper of Baal, when her son dies, she very logically, reasonably believes that um, somehow God is against her. If you know anything about all the pagan gods, um, if you know anything about all the pagan gods, uh, the God of um, Israel and the God of Jesus are very different. But if you if you know anything about the pagan gods, it's really very much a quid pro quo, quo relationship. You know, I'm, I, I do what you tell me, God, that I do good for you, God, and you do good, good for me. Uh, I, I do what's right, you bless me. Uh, I, I offer sacrifices to you. I take care of your temple. Uh, I, I honor you. I, and, and you will then respond with your goodness toward us. So it's a very much kind of uh, commercial relationship. You know, we be good to God, God be good, God's good to us. And that's what you saw all over the ancient world. And when bad things happen, you had two choices, usually in the ancient world, because of the way they viewed gods. One, your God has turned against you, or two, one of the other gods is coming after you. Think about like Odysseus and the gods fighting, and because of that he has a hard time getting, getting back to Ithaca where his wife is. I mean, the gods don't even agree with each other. So, you know, if, you, if you're polytheistic, it's kind of easy. You know, if I have difficulty, it's because there's one God out there that doesn't like me. So she's in the midst of this pagan con- context. So, yeah, she thinks when she has hard times, God, the gods, the divine, the sacred, somehow is turned against her. Um, that's a pagan concept. It's not a Christian concept. Um, you know, the, there's, at the core of Christianity, you have to understand there is absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you less than he loves you right now. And there's absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you more than he loves you right now. You know, our God is a God of grace, of goodness, of giving. It's not quid pro quo. It's not commercial. It's not I do this, then God does that. Um, from Genesis to Revelation, we, we're, we're shown that our God's different from all the pagan gods like that. So it's natural. shouldn't be natural for Christians to do that, you know, when, when, when hard times come. In. I mean, because we believe in sin, flesh, and the devil. We have lots of reasons out there why bad things happen beyond God. But in the ancient world that was filled with gods, you know, if something bad happened to you, it's your God or some other God coming after you. Uh, again, that's paganism. That's not Judaism or Christianity. And Judaism and Christianity is very clear. Um, 
you know, the bad stuff that can happen to us can actually be sanctifying. The bad stuff that's happened to us is not because of something we've done. It's because of sin, flesh, and the devil, the world around us. I mean, the kingdom hasn't come yet. So God's at work in the midst of sin, flesh, and the devil. Uh, So when the bad stuff comes, God intervenes, superintends, and uses it for our sanctifying purposes. Um, Yeah, this this widow Zarephath, she's pagan. So her first thought is, you know, the, the gods are your God. Elijah's doing something for me. Uh, and she, she thinks it has to somehow be connected to her sin. Um, all of those are erroneous assumptions. Now, what really fascinates me, though, is the way Elijah responds. I mean, Elijah probably would have been justified to give her a theological lecture and defend himself. But what's the only words he says in response? Yep. He just simply says, give me your son. No defense, no argument, no, you know, what's happened to you, crazy lady? Um, I've been here all this time now, and you think, I mean, this my God's the one who's providing for you. My God is the one that's making... Um, the, the flour and the oil to not run dry. But he didn't give her a theological lecture. He didn't defend himself. You know, one of the most important spiritual lessons I've learned over the years is, and it's hard, but, it, you know, it's so natural for us to want to defend ourselves. I mean, if somebody disagrees with me, I kind of want to defend myself, defend what I think, defend what I believe. You know, the Bible says, and there may be a time for that, but the Bible says over and over and over, God's our defender. You know, I don't need to argue with everybody that disagrees with me. I, I just need to love the people that disagree with me. You know, that's why, again, I don't give advice unless I ask. And I try not to defend myself, except in rare, rare occasions when it may benefit something or somebody beyond myself. I, don't, I try not to defend myself just for my sake. Um, that's what Elijah's doing here. He does, he's not defending himself. Again, God is our defender. Um, you know, that's what Elijah's doing. I, it might have taken a lot of restraint on his part to not have retaliated to this woman coming at him angry. Why have you, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. He doesn't defend himself. He just simply says, give me your son. Um, Another gift in the spiritual life is to learn how to use fewer words than more words. Uh, Francis Asbury, who Methodist type should know, his portrait's hanging in the uh, um, parlor up there, first bishop of the Methodist people in the United States, said, um, too much talking leaves my soul dry. Actually, he said, too much talking, too little praying leaves my soul dry. So, yeah, sometimes it's a gift to know how to use fewer words than more. But he just simply says, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. See, I I told you I'll show you how he preserved his holiness living with this woman, uh, not because, again, the Bible tells us not to even have the appearance of evil. So sometimes we don't want to do something that just may appear evil. 
Um, this is like C.S. Lewis when he kept Mrs. Moore for 30 years. And he had to walk outside, go up the steps to go to his room. And her room was locked. Uh, still that way, by the way. That, you know, if, if you wanted to notice, you knew how separate they were. Well, in the ancient world, usually houses were built. And you still see this in a lot of the Holy Land. Houses are built as one big common room. Everybody lived in that common room. You, you usually cooked outside or something, but you lived in that common room. But then the roof, the roof's flat. That's why they could kind of tear off the roof and lower somebody down to Jesus. The roof is flat, but so you can make a second room upstairs. But, you know, when you had a two-story house in the ancient world, you didn't have a set of stairs in your house going to the, to the roof. It, it was on the outside. So he, he stayed in the upper chamber. A roof, evidently, there was a, a room built on the roof. So that's where he stayed. That's where he's been staying. So he's not been staying in the main house or in the first level with the, the widow of Zarephath. Because um, I'm sure the people in Zarephath talk like the people in High Point do. Um, and he was trying to prevent that, and he was preventing it. But what I think makes it special to me, that was his room. That would have been his prayer chamber. That would have been his prayer closet. That's where he had spent a lot of time praying. Again, the book of James in the New Testament mentions Elijah as a man of prayer, that, and that's what brought about the three-and-a-half-year drought. So um, I think that's the reason he takes this kid. We don't really know how old this kid is, but he takes this kid and lugs this kid up the steps, um, probably more like a ladder, to get in, that, to get in his room because that's his place of prayer. And that's where he takes the kid. So don't miss out on these little interesting details in, in the Bible. So he goes up there, and then he, he prays twice. Uh, verse 20, and he cried to the Lord. Cried to the Lord's a good definition of prayer. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Um, you know, again, another lesson I think we need to learn early in our spiritual life is we've got to be honest with God in prayer. A lot of people pray the way they think they're supposed to. They pray saying the things they think God wants to hear. Um, that's not what you see in the Old Testament particularly or the New Testament. You need to be honest with God. The word Israel means he who wrestles with God. The Jewish people can tell us a lot about wrestling with God. So that wrestling with God, the honesty, and that's where Elijah starts. He's, he probably is about as angry as the mother, not as much. He's not the mother. But he, he's a little frustrated with God. Oh, Lord, my God. Um, by the way, the word Lord there, you see how it's written. It's all caps. So what is really, what word is really there? Yeah, the personal name of God, Yahweh. So again, the relationship is here. And again, if you have a relationship where you're on first-name basis with God, you should be honest enough. Again, we, we don't argue with acquaintances as much as we argue with people with whom we're close. So that's why, again, your prayer life should exhibit that you're close to, to this God that you're on first-name basis with. Uh, Yahweh is not just the... Um, generic word Lord. It's the name Yahweh. So he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Now, 
don't mean to be disrespectful or sacrilegious, but if, if, I, if God were to answer that, I think he would say to Elijah, no, I haven't, but watch me do some remarkable work using this. Um, verse 21, and this gets interesting. Watch what Elijah does. Then he stretched himself upon the child through t- three times, and he cried to the Lord. Before we look at the prayer, uh, just look at what he's physically doing. Uh, now, just to show you something else, because it's almost more apparent in this, go to Second Kings. Go east a little bit. Go to Second Kings, uh, in chapter 4, where we're into the life of Elisha. Elisha, this is the first resurrection from the dead, uh, what Elijah does, but Elisha does it also. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 4, um, he's going to raise a child from the dead. Elisha is going to raise a child from the dead. Uh, look at verse 32 of 2 Kings chapter 4. This is where Elisha does exactly what his teacher Elijah did. Um, and you don't have this elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's Elijah and Elisha that does it, and then it starts happening in the New Testament. Look at verse 32 of chapter 4, 2 Kings. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Now watch what he does. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his head, hands. And as he stretched himself upon it, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house, went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Bet you had not read that lately. But notice what Elisha does physically. Now, And Elijah does something not quite as dramatic. He just lays on the corpse of the dead child. Um, Now, modern cynics, modern skeptics, look at that and say, oh, we know what's going on here. It's not a resurrection from the dead. It is what? Mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or something like that. And, you know, um, Elijah and Elisha just pulled a fast one. Over the crowd. The, kid, the kids weren't really dead. Um, bless their hearts. Um, <laughs> one, beware of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Everybody that's come before us, even those in the ancient world, were not idiots. They recognized death when they saw it. Uh, they knew what death was. When they, you know, by the way, one of my biggest... I got a list of pet peeves. Like, please use your turn signal. But my, another one of my pet peeves is when I hear people say that the ancients, even through the Renaissance, up into the modern era, people believed the earth was flat. Hogwash. The ancient Greeks knew the world was not flat. Nobody told your elementary school teacher might have done it back in the days, but nobody told Columbus if he sailed far enough he's going to fall off the edge. And that's why I, what makes it irritating to me is when people today will talk about the flat earth society or the flat earth group. And that's all of us who tend to think there's wisdom in the past. And that we're so much smarter today. You know, some people think they're not part. They're so modern and enlightened and up to date. 
They're not part of the flat earth society. People have never been that stupid. People in the ancient world are not that stupid. People in the Renaissance are not that stupid. The ancient Greek philosopher, Aristotle knew, go read Aristotle, he knew the earth was a sphere. You know, um, the only, nobody, nobody intelligent throughout most of history thought the earth was flat. You see the sun go down. When you're sailing away, you, you see the land. You know, so the ancients always thought that. So um, when you've got some modern, enlightened folks who think they're more brilliant than everybody's lived in history, and they refer to those people who think the ancients had wisdom as, as people in the Flat Earth Society, you almost have my, this contradicts everything I just said about not defending. But at that point, I will kind of defend the ancients and say they were smarter than you give them credit for. They knew the earth wasn't flat. You know, that was a myth. They got, I heard it when I was in elementary school, but hopefully things have changed since the 1960s. But, um, yeah, the ancients had good sense. They were smart. Uh, the Bible even ta- it gives Im- implications of the earth being a sphere. Anyway, so, um, so when these people look at something in the Bible and say, oh, that plague was caused in Egypt... Because of the eruption of um, some island somewhere that sank into the ocean and became uh, Atlantis. I mean, I've heard all that stuff. And really, it's not as popular now as it was 100 years ago. Because people are a little more, little, little kinder to the ancients. There's still some modern people who think we're just brilliant and they're stupid. Um, so when the ancients saw what they called death, when the ancients saw what they called a virgin birth, when the ancients saw what they called a miracle, they weren't stupid. They really weren't. What's going on here? If you know the Hebrew Bible well, this late, what you see Elijah and Elisha physically doing, that's called, and a lot of the prophets do it, but we just don't know the Old Testament very well. Uh, a lot of the prophets do what we call a sign act. They would speak prophecy and then they would do something to kind of act out prophecies, such as Jeremiah, when he was prophesying about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, he smashed jars. Now, there's even more interesting. Uh, do you remember when Elijah baked bread over human waste to tell the people what was coming? The one that gets me, because I'm, I'm very um, reserved in a lot of ways, that's my Scott Irish heritage, is Isaiah. You know Isaiah? If, it's a big book, but if you read the book of Isaiah, as a sign act to show the people that hard times, bad times were coming, and that they had done God wrong, he not only said that, he walked around naked for three years. Can't imagine. But he walked around naked for three years. Those were sign acts the prophets did. Uh, they were, the prophets were dramatic, not just in their preaching, but the, their acting. So these were just sign acts. The prophets were known for that. So, um, yeah, I don't think Elijah's or Elijah is doing like mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Anyway, the, the ancients, the Bible, I mean, if it were that, it's still a miracle from God. Uh, I don't think it was that, but, uh, you know, still a miracle from God. Uh, the, the mama knew her son was dead. The whole community probably knew the son was dead. Uh, anyway, so 
Elijah, back to the text. He lays on her, lays on him, and then he prays again, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Uh, Specific prayers are very good. That's a specific prayer. O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Revive. Vive comes from the Latin word for life, so to revive is to give life back. O Lord, let this child's life come to him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Yeah, life came back into him. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see what I did? Of course not. Again, we learn a lot from Elijah here. He didn't come down and say, see what I did? Aren't you proud of me? Do you take back everything you said about me? Um, Elijah doesn't say that. Elijah simply says, see, your son lives. Now, why is this happening to this pagan woman in a pagan culture? Look at the next verse. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Again, this is all about Elijah's God's the real God. Not any of the other gods that are out there flow. That's the same thing that God did with Moses in Egypt. Every one of those plagues attacked one of the Egyptian gods who should have helped them out and didn't. So when God does plagues like that, it's not just for the purpose of Hollywood. When God does something like this, for the purpose of the greater good of helping the world to know who the true God is. So um, I, I think this widow has been getting moved closer and closer to accepting the God of um, Elijah. Because in respect... They always did this to prophets. In respect to Elijah, she's even been calling him man of God. But at this point, I think she gets it. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. All this garbage about Baal is not truth. All that you think Baal is promising you is lies. So comments, reflections. Um, Great text. I don't, I don't want to go any further than that. We'll, do, we'll get an 18 next week. But reflections, comments, questions, uh, how, does it, how does this text impact you? Um, what questions are you left with? I, I, I do this about the Scripture, too. I look at Scripture and I go, did they need something else? Did, did Elijah, Elijah really say... Uh, Look, your, your son lives as opposed to saying, this is what happened, God healed him. But it just doesn't say that here. And I have such a temptation to want to do that. Well, and part of it, you're, you're right. I mean, I always think about what comes at the end of the Gospel of John. <clears throat> the end of the Gospel of John, you're told, if, if everything was recorded that Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the books. So every author leaves stuff out or selects what to tell you. Um, so then the question becomes the author of First Kings, why is he giving it to you this way? Um, I think the author of First Kings probably wants to tell you something about Elijah. 
you know, it's not protecting Elijah. You could, I guess, make that assumption. I think he wants you to know something about Elijah. And that's why, you know, when you look at like the Gospels, and because you have four Gospels, it's really easy to tell what one Gospel writer leaves out that another Gospel writer includes. And you should ask in all the other Gospel writers, why did they leave it out? Like, for instance, Jesus on the cross. Father, into your hands, I, I mean, um, uh, the two thieves uh, on the cross, when one of the thieves says to remember me to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says in response, um, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Only Luke tells you that. Only Luke. Wonder why Luke told you that. Or read the whole gospel of Luke and you'll notice something. Luke, more than the other gospels, tells you about the women, the outcast, the marginalized, the poor, the thieves on the cross. That's more of an interest for Luke. Um, so you, you can almost pick up by seeing what they put in and what they left out. That's their way of telling you, um, telling you something. Yeah, Luke has a special love for the people who get crucified with Jesus. Um, you know, so that, you know, so the author here wants you to know something about Elijah um, when he says stuff like that. Yeah, by the way, that's um, when the Jews do midrash. And that's why Jewish rabbis can take a text like this and talk about it for 10 years. And they look like they're arguing with each other. Um, when the Jewish community does midrash, midrash is they are reading between the lines. That's how you end up with Elijah's going to come back and sit at your Passover table one day. Well, that's a reading between the lines. Uh, you know, it says he, he, you know, he didn't die, but by the time the rabbis finish with he didn't die, he's coming back. He's going to come show up at Passover. So that's mid, the Jews elevated that to an art form. Uh, I love reading rabbinic scholars, rabbinic writings from history. Um, you know, they... they it's midrash. You have to realize it's mid. I mean, it's like, I mean, we Christians do it. You know, when some of the earlier church fathers said, you know, trying to fill in between the lines concerning heaven, some of the early church fathers said, um, we're going to all be 33 years old there. Where do you think they got that at? That's the age of Jesus when he died, and, and that's a pretty good age. You still got your vitality. You're not as stupid as you were when you were. 22, but you got your vibe. So we all do midrash, but even the Jewish community who loves to do midrash, um, I bet some rabbi somewhere has named this lady and has told you the rest of the story about this lady. <laughs> you Google it, you'll find it. Um, but even the Jewish community will say that's midrash. And that's why if you look at the Talmud, which is what Jewish rabbis study, it's like what you have in the middle of the page is the text. And around the page is what rabbis have been saying about that text. We call it commentaries. But the Talmud is the collection of sacred documents with rabbinic commentary around it. Um, yeah, there's so much midrash in Judaism. It's hard to become a rabbi. I mean, you try to, you know, because they'll read the text, and as soon as they read the text, there's certain rabbis they really preference. So that as soon as they read the text, they're going to say, but Rashi, Rashi also tells you. And they tell you all a bunch of stuff. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating. There is out there, and I highly recommend, the Jewish Study Bible. 
Now, when you read the Jewish study Bible, um, it's made for all of us. So uh, it, it is written like we normally read from left to right. It goes from left to right because everything Jews write go the other direction. But the Jewish study Bible is from, from, from left to right, not right to left. Um, but the commentary, now the order is the Jewish order. For instance, the last book is going to be Second Chronicles. The Jewish is the, because they do the law of the prophets and the writings, it's Jewish order. But if you read the Jewish study Bible, um, it's, they have some fascinating comments on some of these texts because they, they will say kind of the same thing we say and then they're going to tell you what some rabbi somewhere told you about it. Um, and that's part of the reason why Elijah, the, the image of Elijah kept growing. By the time of Jesus, it was really big. He's coming back. Um, yeah. What else? M I D R A S H. Yeah. Yeah, Midrash. Um, that's that's a that's a great question, Debbie. When you write your fictionalized account, talk about how talk about how brave this person is. She probably did not walk out in the streets of Zarephath and tell everybody, hey, I think I'm converting to the God of Israel. By the way, don't walk out in the streets of Lebanon today and say you're converting to the God of Israel. It will not go well. But yeah, I mean, that's, she's brave. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you, you keep writing and think, what, how did this story end? Write your fiction. She might have got stoned to death you know, if she went out. And I mean, one, I've got a Hebrew prophet living with me. I'm sure the tongues are wagging. But if she says, you know, I, I'm beginning to believe that that's the real God. You know, what, what the ancient world had, we call it henotheism, they all had their tribal gods. That's why, for, in the Ten Commandments, have no other God before me. Um, they, you know, people had their gods, and that's why part of the Hebrew Bible is to get you to the prophet Isaiah and to get you to the New Testament where you'll eventually say, there's only one God. Any other substitute or imitation out there, by the time you get to the New Testament, they're demonic. There's only one God. If Baal's bringing some gifts to you, it's a demon bringing gifts to you. But early on, even in the Hebrew Bible, um, you know, the early patriarchs knew who their God was. And that's what they were convinced of, who, who their God was. By the time you get to Isaiah, though, there's only one God. The other, other gods are either, are either um, just statues of wood that will do nothing for you. Instead, quote Isaiah, instead of, instead, of God's, instead of your God carrying you, you're carrying your God. That's kind of stupid. Um, so, but by the time you get to the New Testament, Paul is saying if those other gods are doing anything, it's, it's demons doing it. If you're tarot cards, if you're Ouija board, if you're horoscope, the list goes on. You, you know, some of those things can have power. Uh, yeah, I'd love to know what happened. I'd love to know the rest of this story. That's, that's why, you know, in 1988, when I went out and bought my first copy of Frank Peretti's Piercing the Darkness, that was about the only fictional Christian book out there. Now go to Barnes & Noble. There's as much fiction, Christian fiction, as Christian nonfiction. So write you, write you a whole book about this woman. And do midrash, make it up, make it up, because she had to be brave. Um, 
Yeah, she sort of lost it when her son died a little bit, but she had to be brave. And that's understandable, her response to the death of her son. What else? What are some personal applications for our faith from this? What are some teachings that, that we could list? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if when God sent Elijah to Zarephath, again, long distance, 100 miles, pagan, land of Jezebel, I wonder if Elijah said to God, God, even the word means crucible or smelting pot or furnace. Because that, I think that's what it was for Elijah. Um, you know, a, a place of refinement. Malachi talks about that. The New Testament talks about that, how our trials refine us. And refinement means you take gold and get the garbage out of it. Yeah, most of us don't like to be refined. Um, story about the silversmith. When hmm? he went to the silversmith, after she found out, she was talking about refining. Hmm. And she said, he has to hold it there in the hottest part of the fire the whole time. And she asked him, how do you know when it's refined? And he said, what I see myself in it. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a good sermon illustration. God can see himself in you. Yeah, yeah that's when you know you've been refined. Say what? Evidently, he wanted to save the lady. He's doing mission work in a very hostile place, yeah. Yeah. Uh, last, um, last Wednesday night, we gathered about 745 and prayed over... Um, Sarah Gant, 22-year-old from our congregation, is going to work in Rwanda for a year. Now, she'll be teaching. Now, Rwanda is basically a Christian country. But still, these Christian countries don't, are not thrilled when missionaries come in, Christian missionaries. So you can go in and teach and kind of have influence. I had a friend of mine years ago. Now, this did startle me. I had a friend of mine years ago... Um, right after the fall of the old Soviet Union, he went to Kazakhstan with a family of, I think, six or seven, or it seemed like a dozen children he took with him and his wife. Kazakhstan was Muslim, is Muslim. He had to go in as a teacher to teach English as a second language. And I saw pictures of him baptizing people in Kazakhstan. Now, we couldn't even put him on our prayer list saying he was there as a missionary. I've had uh, people from my congregations who were in very, very dangerous places, and we had to be very careful how we even put that on a prayer list because their lives could be in danger. Yeah, Elijah going, I'm sure Elijah, it was, you know, he's there helping this woman. He's probably a little secluded there because it'd be dangerous to be in that pagan environment. I mean, they're, they're political enemies most of the time. That's why today don't walk around Lebanon saying you believe in the God of Israel. Um, that would not end well. Uh, they're political enemies, but they're religious enemies too. Yeah, um, you don't want to go to parts of Sudan and, and preach Christ. I mean, yeah, he did something to make himself stand out. Yep. So he, he, wasn't, he wasn't hiding. He was, he was probably in one of the most brazen ways um, living with a widow. 
And, and, and remember, he's going to go from this. He's coming out. He's going to go from this to his, um, to his marvelous, miraculous defeat of the 450 prophets of Baal who belonged to Jezebel, 450 prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel, and that's when he flees all the way to Mount Sinai. Why does he flee? What does Jezebel say? I'm going to kill you now. So Jezebel is a little... Again, Jezebel's over in with Ahab in Samaria. You know, it, it probably took her a while. I mean, if she could have told her father, Etbal, that you got this strange Hebrew in your territory, you probably, she probably would have. But when, when she... Um, yeah, eventually he's going to flee for his life. One of the things, by the way, I'm sure we'll talk about it. When he defeats the prophets of Baal, I think one of the reasons he flees and descends into such depression and despair and sadness and has an extended pity party that God has to bring him out of. I think part of that is he thought when he defeated the 450 prophets of Baal in a miraculous way, and I think they're all slaughtered in a miraculous way, I think he thought at that point Ahab and Jezebel were just going to roll over and say, okay, Elijah, you're right. That's a lesson does of the tenacity of evil. You can prove evil wrong straight to its face. It doesn't matter. So when he thought, I think he expected Ahab and Isabel to just yield as to who the real God is. But instead, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. I've had all I can take out of you. And he runs. Miraculously runs. All the way from Samaria down through all of Judah, down to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Sinai. And you're going to ask the question, wonder why, I know why he runs, why does he run to Sinai? Yeah, that'd be an interesting question when you see him run, that, run there. But yeah, eventually he's going to get in big time trouble um, because of his missionary work. Yeah, write your fictionalized accounts. You can do a lot with this stuff. You know, I, you, you know put in there that when Elijah walked the streets, they threw rotten eggs at him. I mean, I'm sure some of that stuff happened. Um, any last concluding remarks? This really is good stuff. One of the reasons I love to worship in synagogues, don't get many opportunities, but I love to do Shabbat worship with Jews is I love to hear Orthodox Jews talk about their stuff. Now, again, they'll tell you a whole lot more about Elijah than we can get from here. But I love to hear them talk about their stuff. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Let's pray together.